earlier in the retreat, I told a story about the ascetic Sumedha, who, upon seeing the Dipankara Buddha of his day, made the resolution to become a Buddha. Only after making that resolution did he take a look at what was going to be involved. <laughs> uh, and he searched the entire cosmic order, it said, investigating the causes for enlightenment. Because he wanted to know what was now required of him. And when he looked at the contributory, contributory causes of enlightenment, he discovered the paramis that we have been speaking about on this retreat. Generosity, morality, renunciation, loving-kindness, wisdom. These are the qualities of the awakened or the awakening mind. And in Burma, there's an understanding that the foundation of our insight practice, the, the determinant, really, of our depth of concentration and the depth of our insight is determined by the development of our paramis. And so, in Burma, there's the understanding that we work on our paramis in our everyday life. How we speak, how we act, what we're concerned, and how we, what we do with our time. And only every so often, for two months a year, do they allow people to come to the meditation center to do their practice. Do intensive practice for a couple of months, see what your depth of concentration and insight is, then go home and live your life for 10 months, doing what you do, work, family, play, social, service, developing the paramis. Come back next year, do another two months. See how your practice has deepened, how your mind has gotten more concentrated, more support for the opening of insight and the letting go. The, per the paramis are the forces of perfection the forces of purity in our mind through practice, we purify our mind basically of the three root causes of suffering, greed, hatred, and delusion, or attachment, aversion, and confusion in all of their many forms. Tonight I want to speak about the seventh parami, which is truthfulness. And it refers to speaking what is real, what is true, what one knows for themselves through experience to be true. And what this involves is refraining from speaking falsely, primarily, and I'll include other wrong speech, forms of wrong speech in this talk. It's interesting, after the ascetic Sumedha made the vow, made the determination to become a Buddha, he lived out innumerable lifetimes developing these paramis, and it is said that he was not yet perfected in them. And over the course of his lifetimes, uh, he was uh, not always so pure. In fact, he had trouble with the precepts, except the precept on truthfulness. It said that's the one precept he did not break. In all the hundreds of years or hundreds of lifetimes that it took for him to develop these paramis to the perfection of becoming a Buddha. In reading The Splendor of Enlightenment, which is the story of the Bodhisattva's development of the awakening qualities and the becoming of the Buddha. It said that he saw the seventh perfection of truth, the seventh parami of truth, and thought, O wise Sumedha, 
From now on do you fulfill the perfection of truth as well. Even though the thunderbolt may descend upon your head, do not utter a conscious lie for the sake of wealth and so forth, being actuated by desire and like motives. Even as the healing star Venus pursues its own course throughout all the seasons without running along a different orbit, even so you too, without forsaking the truth and uttering no falsehood, will become a Buddha. It seems kind of obvious, but why is truthfulness so important to the path of awakening? What are we awakening to? What is, the, what is the, our aspiration? What is our goal? We want to awaken to the way things are in order that we can learn to live in alignment with the way things are. For when we do, we stop struggling. We stop creating confusion, division, isolation, alienation. We stop wanting things to be otherwise and stop having aversion to the way things are. We, we see the way they are, or the way it is. We live in alignment. We stop struggling, stop suffering. And in that, we realize the happiness of freedom, of not struggling. In order to see the way things are, it's hard. We, we've been struggling for a month now to just see how the breath is, let alone anything deeper than that. But how, how is it just for our body and mind in this moment? It's tough. It's really hard. But with, with practice, we see that we can stay in the present moment, see, it, see how it is now, and upon reviewing or reflecting upon the past, we see, uh, oh, this is, this is the way it really was in the past, uh, and we clarify the truth. When we willfully intend to deceive others, through speaking or acting or behavior, it clouds our own mind. It compromises our integrity and it brings our own energy into conflict with itself. The Buddha, giving some advice to his son about living the life of a truth seeker, said, So too, Rahula, when one is not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie, there is no unwholesome thing that one would not do. Therefore, Rahula, you should train thus. I will not utter a falsehood, even as a joke. The Buddha said. As we develop the mindful attention to be present, there's one quality of mind that comes along with mindfulness, and it's called ujjukata in the Buddhist psychology. Ujjukata. It means straightness of mind. It means that your mind straightens out. You know, sometimes when you, when you, when you look at situations or you look at the problems in your life or the, the decisions that need to be made in your life, you can't reach a decision. You can't, you can't figure it out. Your mind just goes round and round and round and round and just, it seems like the more you consider it, the more of a tangle it becomes. The mind is not straight. The mind isn't seeing things as they are. It's, it's complicated by unstraightness of mind. Well, that doesn't mean that every time you have to make a decision, if the decision isn't clear, you have, you're not being straight. But, sometimes we see just how convoluted our mind can be. Straightness of mind has the capacity to cut through rationalizations, justifications, defenses, all self-interested efforts. And in that, it cuts through fear, 
ambition, pride, judgment, so that we can kind of take ourselves out of the way, see how things are, and only then decide what we should do. Because we put our own self-interest first, we don't see. It's more difficult to see the way it is, especially if it conflicts with what we think is our own best interest. So the development of mindfulness is the path to the truth. It is the path to truthfulness in speaking the truth. Our words that we speak have tremendous power. What we say really matters to ourselves, to others, and the karmic results of what we say are felt both immediately and far into the unforeseen future. Therefore, we should consider carefully the motivation we have in speaking. Now, when I say motivation, I mean both notice the impulse to speak, the moment of impulse to speak. And someone has said, and I'm sorry I don't have a reference to just who it is right now, before you speak, consider whether you can improve upon silence. That would be pretty demanding. That's, pr that's the high bar. <laughs> There's a low bar. Consider just where, you're, where you are coming from and what you intend to convey, even, in what you say. We speak for many reasons, of course. Sometimes, out of loneliness, we talk to ourselves, to others. Sometimes we feel ill at ease. And so to kind of fill up the quiet or fill up the stillness or the silence, we speak. Sometimes we, our emotions need to be expressed. Sometimes we just proliferate endless chatter for no purpose. Our intended effect can be equally wide-ranging to inform, to connect, to share, to help, as well as to express, impress, deceive, cajole, intimidate, threaten, titillate, excite, shock, entice, subdue, put down, and so forth and so on. Do we know when we speak what we're intending to do? This is the practice of truthfulness, to be aware of what our motivation is, what our intended purpose is in speaking the truth. One consideration in speaking is to ask yourself, what do you want from, from speaking? Do you want to be right? Do you want to be liked? Do you want to impress someone? Do you want to argue? Sometimes if we just ask ourselves, you know, we get caught up in conversations and hopefully mindfulness will kind of let you step back from the flow of it all and just take a look and say, what am I doing here? What am I doing in this conversation? Do I really want to be in this conversation? We have this little bell over on our staff dining room table. You might hear it ringing sometimes. It's when one of us recognizes that the conversation is just not edifying to our practice that it really is just out there, off, gone, not purposeful. And somebody with, the, with a little mindfulness rings the bell, and there's the understanding that we'll at least try to stop talking for, for a moment. Sometimes it's very difficult to stop the mom momentum of a conversation even if one amongst you has realized it's not going anywhere, purposeful. Truthfulness 
is one condition that the Buddha laid down for right speech. Right speech is one of the eightfold, one of the factors of the eightfold path, the path to awakening, the path to freedom. And so truthfulness, or speaking only that which is true, is one of those conditions. Here, on retreat, we take the precept. Fourth precept, Musawada, is to refrain from speaking falsely. And it's pretty easy here because we're silent. Most, you know, I mean, uh, 47 hours and uh, 50 minutes out of, uh, you know, 48. So it's, it's you know, we can't, we can't do too bad. Nevertheless, we do have occasions to speak to teachers, ask questions, write notes. And I'm sure you've seen how easy it is to shade what you say towards how you want to appear. When you come to, interview, come to check-ins, there's some heavy editing going on before you get there and say what it is you say. Why? Well, we want to say the best we can, I guess. We want to look. We want to appear to be as good as we hope we are. Or maybe, or or maybe our maybe our internal storyline is, I'm a, I'm really suffering. I'm, this is, or, and we forget all the, you know, good practice, and we come in with just this overwhelming, suffering. Either way, we edit heavily. To create an impression, often it's very difficult to not censor our practice how we talk about it. We can see the power of commitment to the truth in people like Gandhi, Martin Luther King, and others who speak truth to power. And there's a whole book out, Speaking Truth to Power, about people throughout the world who have courageously spoke the truth, sometimes with dire political, political, economic, uh, personal consequences to themselves and others, because their commitment to the truth is preeminent. It's, it's the commitment they make. And if you know anyone who you feel really has a commitment to the truth, speaking the truth, living the truth, acting on the truth, you know how how much power accrues to someone who just will not be compromised. When we break silence in a couple of days, you'll have the opportunity to speak. And in the flood and flow of give and take, speaking and talking, you'll have a lot of opportunity to speak about your practice. How was your retreat? How was it for you? And so off we go, trying to somehow speak about how it was, telling the truth. In light of that, it's, re- it's instructive to note that when you ordain, or when I or anyone ordains as a monk, there are four rules that, that we're told immediately must never be broken. Because to break any of these rules means you're automatically expelled from the monkhood and you can no longer be a monk. You can't reordain. You can't confess it even. That's it. Your life as a monk, this lifetime, is over. And one of those rules is about speaking about your meditation experiences falsely. To create an impression in someone else about your practice that is not true. Now why would the Buddha think that that was so, so important? The other ones are killing, stealing, and you know, things like that. I mean, in this one, speaking falsely about your meditation experience. 
it's so important because our faith in the Dharma and others' faith in the Dharma is fragile. Until we have realized for ourselves the truth of the Dharma, until we've walked the path, seen for ourselves how how the Dharma is, our faith and our interest and energy and capacity to practice the Dharma is tentative, it's fragile, it can be damaged. And if we mislead others, we undermine their faith. What that means is we put roadblocks in the way of their happiness, of their finding true and complete happiness. That is a heavy karmic burden, if you want to know. To block someone, to, to impede someone, to deceive someone, to, to put roadblocks in the way of someone who's interested in disentangling their mind. To offer more entanglement. It's a heavy karma. And so the Buddha said, it is so heavy, in fact, we've got to let you know, because this is, what, this, this is the effect of it. It's funny because, or it's interesting that in the in the rules for monks, of course, there's rules that cover everything, and some of the rules, in fact, there are more rules about speaking than any other topic. And some of the rules about speaking have to do with, of course, the practice and the goal of liberation, but a lot of the rules have to do with preserving harmony in the community of monks speaking to each other in such a way as to not damage the fabric of the community. So important. And the third consideration for rules of speaking for monks, practice their own liberation, harmony in the community, and the third is preserving or supporting or encouraging the faith of others by what they say, how they say, when they say, where they say, what they do. when we intentionally deceive others through our speaking. Why do we do that? Now, for, let me just step back and say, most of us have not made a firm, unshakable resolve to be completely truthful all the time. And so, for us, Truthfulness is a practice. It's something we're working towards. It's an aspiration. It's, it's something we're, we're trying out, you know, and, and there are times when we just get to our limit and we say, this is too scary to be truthful about. I, I, I don't dare. Out of fear, out of aversion, out of greed, out of some, trying to protect some image of ourselves. And so, you know, that, that's, our, that's our current limitation, that's our current boundary, and, and we, need to, we need to at least acknowledge it. I'm not saying we should respect it, but we, should, we need to acknowledge it and say, you know, that's my limit. This is my practice. Can I be a little more truthful when I, when I get to this place? What is it that I'm afraid of? What is it that I'm holding back? What is it that, what sense of myself is so important to preserve? that I will incur the unwholesome karma of deception. That, uh, uh, it's pretty heavy. I'm sorry. It's pretty heavy talk. But we talk a lot. We talk a lot. And everything we say is creating karma. Let's, let's just be aware. This, this is the field we're playing in. Okay. Now let's step back and, and realize how are we doing? Well, we're doing the best we can. And as we take on in this understanding of, of truthfulness as a practice, you know, it brings it into light a little more. Okay, let's look. You know, there's some work to be done here. It's said that lying, gross lying, is speech which has these components. It's false. And it's spoken with the intent to deceive. And not only that, but the person who hears it believes it 
to their detriment, to their economic, their social, their physical, their emotional detriment. If they don't believe it, well, no harm was done. The intent was wrong, and so you've got some karma. If the harm was done, more karma. Ryokan puts it all in a little, a little lighter vein. He says, if you speak delusion, everything becomes a delusion. If you speak the truth, everything becomes the truth. Outside of the truth, there is no delusion. But outside delusion, there's no special truth. Followers of the Buddha's way, why do you so earnestly seek the truth in distant places? Look for delusion and truth in the bottom of your own heart. The truth is in here. It's not out there. It's not in the way it is or the way things are. or It's not in social convention. It's in our heart. Kamala and I were having dinner with a friend. We were in Massachusetts and a friend from Maui came over and we were having dinner. In the midst of, in the midst of dinner, we were rambling on about something. And our guest, our friend, was telling a joke. And, you know, we were, we were all caught up in the conversation and just going on. And in the before the punchline, in the middle of the joke, he just goes, Musawada. He wipes his hand across his mouth and goes, Musawada. Meaning, this is not true. And it was such a, I mean, it was shocking. When you're so caught up in the story and somebody, somebody's mindfulness erupts into the conversation, whew, wow. The Buddha said, even as a joke, hmm, wow. And, and you've heard me tell some jokes here that, you know, I'm, it's not always there for me. But, okay, let's take the guidance, do the best we can, and understand it's a practice. You know the uh, story of the little boy who cried wolf? You know, he, he was protecting the community sheep out in the fields, away from the center of town. And he got bored one afternoon, and he said, I'm going to play a trick on them. Wolf! Wolf! He called, he says, you know. And so the, the village folk thought the wolf was carrying off their sheep, so they all came running out, you know. It's like, where's the wolf? Where's the wolf? Trying to protect their property and their, you know, their, their wealth, really. And the little boy says, ha ha, fooled you. No wolf. Okay. So the people went back to town and uh, went back to their work. And a couple of days later, the little boy got bored again. He says, ah, I'm going to fool him again. So he says, wolf! Wolf, and all the people come running out, and they to, to protect their their uh, inheritance and their wealth. And the boy says, "Ha ha, fooled you, no wolf." Okay. A couple of days later, the wolf came to start carting off the sheep, and little boy shouts, "Wolf, wolf!" And all the people in town say, "Ah, you're just kidding. There's no wolf out there," and they lost their valuable possessions. When we live in a culture of we live in a culture of deception. I I don't need to convince you of that. You know, I mean, you know, we have a whole industry in Southern California devoted to creating illusion, and there's another one in Washington, and uh, Wall Street's close behind. What does that kind of you know when when when, when it's so accepted in our culture that people are not speaking the truth, you are not seeing reality. Even in TV shows now, you can't tell the difference between news and fiction. It's like, you know, they have news shows that look like fiction and fiction shows that look like the news. And so it's like, wow, you can't, you don't know. And so what does that do to our own minds? Cynicism, disrespect for the truth. We don't even recognize the truth. And so we, we really are at a, in a very vulnerable position because when someone does speak the truth, we may not recognize it. 
What is the truth? Who in our society is speaking the truth? There are people in institutions that have tremendous power and do not speak the truth. And some of those who do speak the truth are just single individuals. No position, no power, no no means other than their own integrity. That's the culture we live in. We are conditioned by our culture. Our standards are deeply conditioned by our culture standards. And so when we do this practice and we look within, that's what we come up against. We come up with all sorts of justifications, rationalizations, reasons and defenses for being deceptive and dishonest and confused. Disentangling our minds from that and the harm that that does is a challenge. It's really difficult. It's to live the truth is is not the com- is not it may not be the c- most comfortable path. Oh, well, I guarantee it's not going to be the most comfortable path. It's not. It's taking on willingly some unpleasant conditions, knowing that the truth is more valuable than comfort. Sometimes we find ourselves in a situation where to tell the truth, even though it's not our intention, is going to cause pain. To tell the truth, someone's going to feel hurt. Then we're put in a situation, is our commitment to the truth more important than our acting out of compassion? And we've all faced this decision. We've all looked at this, probably more than once. And it's, well, I'll tell you, there's no answer. There's no right answer. Because each one of us has to find our own way where our energy is, where our mindfulness is, what's of value to each one of us in this situation, other situations. But to at least consider, you know, the truth, speaking the truth, even if it causes pain, knowing that that's not the intention, or to willingly accept the karmic consequences of not telling the truth in order to uh, not cause pain, not cause suffering, not cause potential harm. It's, It's a tough decision. Only mindfulness, only awareness, I mean real, just being brutally truthful is not necessarily the right course of action. And some truth is really harsh, or we can speak the truth in harsh, uh, harming ways. And so we need to look at our own intention, really, in our own understanding. What is going on here? What, What is it that I can do to be as truthful as possible and to cause as little harm as possible? Buddha's eightfold path, the path to awakening, freedom. Right speech is one whole area of practice. And right speech involves first this truthfulness or speaking the truth. But another consideration that the Buddha included in right speech is to speak only that which is beneficial. Even though something is true, 
if it is not beneficial to someone. To refrain from speaking. Because it may be harmful, it may, it may just be useless. It may be harmful. And just speaking the truth is not always the wisest course of action. So much of our speaking is not beneficial, useless, chit-chat, gossip, uh, rambling on about no specific thing for no purpose other than to relieve some anxiety possibly, fill up the quiet, impress someone. I, I've seen it in myself and so I'm kind of, there's a kind of confession. You know, you hear something from someone, something exciting, you know, the news of the day or something. And you don't even know if it's true. You just you just hear it, you know, and it, and it does something to you. Or it kind of excites you, or it kind of impresses you, or it kind of, you know, despairs you, or whatever it is. The next person you see, you tell them the same thing. And things get passed around. And it's amazing, you know. There's some TV show that was big hit recently, you know, where the people are trying to outdo each other, that one, or Survivor, Survivor, that's it. I couldn't believe how many people were watching that show. And, you know, they come to interviews and that's what they want to talk about. They come to the retreat, that's what they want to talk about. And it's like, wow, I mean, it's like, you know, even if you're not interested, you get <laughs> entangled in other people's, because it's, you know, sometimes what's on TV is more real than people's own lives. Sometimes. A lot of the time, frankly. So, anyway. There's a word for set speech in uh, the Pali language. The Buddha called it Sampapalapawara. <laughs> it's, uh, it's the word for useless, frivolous chit-chat. That it has no purpose. Gossip included. So you might ask, well, what's What's the harm in a little bit of chit-chat and, you know, just kind of checking in with each other and kind of making the connection? Well, if that's all it is, not so much harm. But if that's all there is, tremendous harm. Because, you know, if, if, if the depth of your conversation doesn't go anything beyond what's on TV or what's in the newspaper, You're not helping anybody on the way, on the path. You're not helping yourself or anyone else. But rather just entangling our own minds in more frivolous, useless chatter. And I'm, you know, when the mind opens to that part of the mind, you know, the whole storeroom of useless, frivolous chatter, and you've got to listen to it all again, it's phenomenal. It's just how much useless conversations we've put up with. Well, what is... <laughs> the Buddha had some suggestions for the monks and nuns of his day on what were topics of useless chatter. It's really instructive to read the Buddha's list of topics that are considered unedifying to those who are interested in disentangling their minds. Now remember, he's talking to monks and nuns, people who are devoting 24-7 to disentangling their minds. Okay? Now, we're not 24-7 we're not yet, but we're getting there. So the Buddha said, these topics for monks are unedifying or lowly. Talk of kings, ministers, and all politicians. <laughs> Robbers and other criminals. Armies and wars, dangers. Food, drink clothes, beds, garlands, perfumes, cosmetics and jewelry, relatives, <laughs> the opposite sex, heroes, the deceased, villages, towns, cities, countries, street and well gossip, phil philosophical speculation on being and non-being, random and desultory chat that lacks a definite plan, regularity, purpose, and it's not committed to anything. 
okay. <laughs> so uh, that takes all of TV, all of the news, and uh, everything on the internet. Okay, what's left? <laughs> okay. Well, um, now remember the the Buddha's talking about to those who are really looking to disentangle their mind. Okay. So what did he suggest were good topics? The uplifting topic, suitable for Dharma fairs. Talk on wanting little. <laughs> Talk on contentment. Talk on the benefits of being secluded. Talk on aloofness from contact or sensory stimulation. Talk on strenuous, making strenuous effort. The talk on virtue, talk on concentration, understanding, deliverance, freedom, the Dhamma. Now, you know, after the retreat sometime, you're going to have the opportunity to go out for dinner with friends. <laughs> and you're going to have to talk about something over dinner. <laughs> what about contentment as a topic? <laughs> no, really. I mean, you know, how are you doing on the contentment level in your life? I mean, are you feeling content? Where do you feel content? Where don't you feel content? What's, why not? I mean, you can talk about survivor, or you can talk about contentment. It's a practice, remember? You know, right speech is a practice. So we have to kind of push the edge, push the boundary a little bit, challenge ourselves, you know, and, and seek support from our friends and, and uh, other dinner dining partners. You know, when, there was, um, when I first went on staff at the Meditation Center in Massachusetts, I went in 78, 77 and 78, there was uh, a group of people that came on staff right then that were all pretty about my age and really on fire with the dumb, just really interested. And honest, all the time, that's what we were talking about, the Dharma. Of course, it was the Dharma that was way beyond our reach, and some of it, it was just all the time. We were just, that, that was it. I mean, yeah, there was a little bit of other stuff too, but it was so inspiring, so demanding, so challenging, and so enlighten, enlightening in a, in a relative sense. Those people have become, have became, and have remained my best friends. Throughout the 25, 25 years, because of that connection, because and in fact, all of our lives have stayed in the Dharma and, and have been involved in service and teaching and monastic living and, and whatnot, because it's so. And I think it was a large part due to the support we got, the the inspiration, the support, the the excitement about practicing the Dharma. It was just amazing. It was just a transformative uh, social network, if you will. There's no reason that we can't do that now in our life. To cultivate those relationships, friendships, activities that support awakening. It's a practice. It's, it's, it's a place to extend yourself, to stretch yourself, to to let go of a little bit of that and take on a little bit of this. Now, speaking about the Dharma, you know, the Dharma is, it's profound. It's, it's, it's the way things are. It's the truth. It's not superficial. It's not light banter. It's, and when you hear the Dharma, you feel inspired. You feel like uh, motivated to uh, develop the best that's within you, and for most of us, we have a commitment to the Dharma that that is really central in our life. Yes, we have other things that are take a lot of time and energy and efforts, but you don't do a month-long retreat if the Dharma isn't getting close to the center of your life. We should be careful how we speak about the Dharma. Be careful how we speak about our own practice. Be careful how we 
you know, share our faith in the Dharma and to not casually throw it out for others of little faith to take pot shots at or to damage in their own careless way. But we should really protect <coughs> the faith and the practice and, and our own understanding because it's fragile. And you know how hard it is to, to practice to develop true confidence in the Dharma or in your own capacity to realize the Dharma. So be gentle. Associate with Kalyanamitas, those who really support the, the practice you're doing. Spend some time with them too. Truthful, beneficial. The Buddha went on to also say that when you speak, to try to speak coming from a place of loving-kindness. To speak gently. To have loving-kindness in your heart for those to whom you speak and of whom you speak. To speak in such a way as to create harmony, to repair broken relationships, to, to, to encourage intimacy, openness, and to speak in such a way that what you say can be heard. Speaking at the right time. And a large part of that is learning how to listen to what others have to say. There's a lot that could be said about speaking, but I'm remembering what I said at the beginning of the talk. Consider whether what you say can improve on silence. Mm. And I'm not sure I need to say any more. Let me just end with one little reminder. On Friday we're going to begin speaking. You will, you will begin speaking with each other. And it's very easy after a month of silence or two weeks of silence to, to get filled up pretty quick, pretty easily, to, to, be, uh, to start getting uncomfortable with taking in more. So the Navajo have a, a phrase that they use when they recognize that they need to withdraw from social interaction. When they, when they see that they're full, they can't take any more, and they need to go let it digest or, or empty out a little bit. They have this phrase, I go now. <laughs> it's not a judgment on the content of the conversation. It's not a judgment of the person that you're talking to or speaking to you or speaking at you. It's just a recognition that you're full. Can't take any more in now. And so I want to suggest that we remember this phrase. I go now. And if any one of you feels full and you need to leave the conversation, we'll all understand that you're full. Then mindfulness has erupted in your stream of conversation and said, that's enough. And we won't take it as a personal uh, judgment or uh, a criticism of us. We will respect your uh, wisdom of remaining silent. So remember this phrase, I go now. So let's sit for a minute and let the words dissolve into silence.
A Ritual to Read to Each Other by William Stafford. If you don't know the kind of person I am, and I don't know the kind of person you are, a pattern that others made may prevail in the world, and following the wrong God home we may miss our star. For there is many a small betrayal in the mind, a shrug that lets the fragile sequence break, sending with shouts the horrible errors of childhood, storming out to play through the broken dike. And as elephants parade holding each elephant's tail, but if one wanders, the circus won't find the park. I call it cruel, and maybe the root of all cruelty, to know what occurs but not recognize the fact. And so I appeal to a voice, to something shadowy, a remote, important region in all who talk. Though we could fool each other, we should consider, lest the parade of our mutual life get lost in the dark. For it is important that awake people be awake, or a breaking line may discourage them back to sleep. The signals we give, yes or no, or maybe, should be clear. The darkness around us is deep. Oh, thank you for listening to this Dhamma talk. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.